at all the exits. I think they, well, they're gone at this exit, but you can probably get them at the other two. And uh, they have a purple cover, I think, this week. Please follow as I read God's inspired word that is given for our instruction in Numbers chapter 12. I, as I've been doing this series on Moses, at one point somebody, I can't even remember who, told me, you know, I've never read through the book of Exodus before in their Christian life. And it dawned on me, there may be a lot of people who have never read Exodus or Numbers or, you know, these books. And... Um, So I would encourage you to do so. Um, I try to read just consecutively through the Old Testament, except for Psalms. I read a Psalm every morning, and then I read Genesis to Malachi. I just finished Zechariah this morning, so Malachi, and then I'll start over. And then I read uh, also from the New Testament as I have time each morning. And there's just a benefit in allowing the entire word to shape your thinking about God, about the world, everything. So I encourage you to uh, make a goal to read through the word of God if you've never done so, cover to cover, in a year is a good, good plan. Numbers chapter 12, then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. You can almost read, uh (laughs) uh-oh. Next verse. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Suddenly, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, You three, come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent, and he called Aaron and Miriam. And when they had both come forward, he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. And with him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. As Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. And then Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, I beg you, don't account this sin to us in which we have acted foolishly and in which we have sinned. O don't let her be like one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. Moses cried out to the Lord saying, O God, heal her, I pray. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, which was a sign of shame in that culture, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and afterwards she may be received again. So Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days, 
And the people did not move on until Miriam was received again. Stephen Neal has said, Criticism is the manure in which God's servants grow best. That's a humorous and yet insightful comment. If you've been in leadership, you can nod and say, I understand that. The truth is, however, many of God's servants don't like the smell of manure. And so they get out of it as quickly as they can. Almost 30 years ago, there was a survey done in which they found that in every seminary that they could survey in their graduating class, among the men who went into the ministry right out of seminary, within five years, 20% of them had left the ministry. And the main reason that they had left was not low pay, not a moral problem, not a health issue. The number one reason that they left the ministry was the pressure of criticism. Back in Numbers chapter 11 that we looked at last week, Moses was attacked by what is labeled the rabble. And that was the non-Jewish people that came out of Israel with uh, Israel when they left. But now Moses' sister and brother Miriam and Aaron speak out against him. Commentators agree that Miriam was the instigator of this for two reasons. Number one, she is listed first. And number two, the verb, the Hebrew verb in verse 1 is a feminine singular verb. As we've seen back in the incident of the golden calf, Aaron was more of a follower than a leader. People came, oh, please make us a god. So, he, okay, fine, and he goes along with it. Here, probably his more dominant sister has a problem with Moses, and so she brings it to Aaron. He uh, passively goes along with her, But when the Lord confronted them and left Miriam leprous, some sort of skin disease, Aaron was quick to repent. The pretext for their criticism was Moses' marriage to a Cushite woman. But the real reason was jealousy about Moses' unique position of leadership over the entire congregation of Israel. Miriam was a prophetess, probably ministering to the women. Uh, Aaron was the high priest. And so they get talking and say, hey, we deserve equal billing. You know, the Lord's spoken through us as well, so let's make things equal here. And they go to Moses. And um, we don't know, but maybe uh, one commentator suggests Miriam might have felt threatened by Moses' new wife, that she would challenge her leadership over the women of Israel. This is the only time in the Bible this wife of Moses is mentioned, and so there are some differing views on who she was. Some commentators argue that it was one and the same with Zipporah. That was the Midianite woman Moses had married when he was a shepherd out on the backside of the desert, and the basis for equating the two is that there is a verse in Habakkuk 3, 7, where the 
the Cushites and the Midianites are one and the same. But Moses had been married to Zipporah for some time, and this sounds like it's a new situation, a new wedding, new wife, and so it would seem to me to refer to a different woman. Usually in the Bible, when Cush is mentioned, it refers to a dark-skinned people who came from the very south of Egypt, maybe even further south, down into modern Sudan or Ethiopia. And uh, so probably Zipporah had died, and Moses married this woman who remains unnamed in Scripture, uh, who had come out of Egypt with Israel, even though she herself was not Israeli. Um, Whether because of her citizenship, that she was not a a, a descendant of Abraham through uh, Sarah, or because she had dark skin, we don't know, or maybe she was threatened, as I said, but Miriam didn't like this wife. So she goes to Aaron and complains. Uh, Aaron sides with her. We don't know if they complain to others as well and spread the uh, complaint, but we do know from verse 2, the Lord heard it. Of course, he always hears everything, but that statement is there to give us an alert. Look out, the Lord is going to take action on behalf of his servant Moses, which he does. And so this is a story about challenging God's appointed spiritual leaders. And the main lesson for us is that while there are times when it is right to challenge spiritual leaders, we should never challenge the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the sole and only head of his church. Now, in coming to this subject, I think Americans have a faulty view of authority. It is in our blood that we live in a democracy and the people have a right to challenge a leader. You know, vote the turkey out of office. Write a letter to the editor. You know, we don't have to put up with this stuff. We have this attitude toward authority that they are subject to us and not vice versa. Um, Back in the revolutionary times, one of the early flags, you've probably seen it, pictures a snake coiled up, ready to strike, and the caption is, don't tread on me. And they sent that message loud and clear to King George over in England. Hey, buddy, back off. You don't have a right to tell us what to do. And that's the American way. I gave a message on that subject back in 2007 called Understanding Biblical Authority. I was in Titus chapter 2 and verse 15. And I said this, When it comes to the church, most American evangelicals do not view it as a place where you submit to the leadership for the purpose of growth and accountability, but rather as a store where you shop as a consumer. If you like the place and it serves your needs, you come back. If another place down the road offers uh, a more pleasant experience, you move your business there. And thus, pastors who are trying to market their churches don't dare say anything that might offend or upset the customers, the customer's king. 
You want to please your customers. And with this consumer view about the church, the idea of spiritual authority, of proclaiming, thus says the Lord, seems odd and out of place. And so as we come to this text, we need to understand and apply uh, some basics about the subject of biblical spiritual authority. The first point is just to understand that God gives authority to spiritual leaders for the church's blessing and protection. And that's true of all authority. Government authority, authority in the church, authority in the home where the husband is declared the head of the wife in Ephesians. All of that is given for the benefit of those under authority to protect and bless them. And if an authority, a leader, uses his authority to dominate those under his authority, to abuse them in any way, to use his authority for personal perks, you know, to get what he wants, he is misusing God-given authority and someday will answer to the Lord who delegated that authority. So we need to understand one thing about Moses' authority here, and then three things about how that transfers over to the local church. Uh, Moses was the sole spiritual leader over Israel, and he was their mediator to God. We've seen that in previous studies. So in other words, Israel was not a democracy where Moses won the election. You know, now he's in power, and uh, no, it wasn't that way at all. As you know, God chose Moses as a reluctant leader when he was out by the burning bush. He appointed him to go and confront Pharaoh and lead Egypt, uh, Israel out of Egypt. And we read in Exodus 33, God spoke to Moses face to face just as a man speaks with his friend. God repeats that here in verse 8. He speaks to Moses mouth to mouth openly, not in dark sayings. And so Moses had a unique role in Israel, and Numbers chapter 12 was written to vindicate Moses as the uh, divinely given leader over Israel. Now, in that role, Moses is not a role model for a pastor or leaders of a of local Christian church or of leaders in a Christian ministry but rather Moses was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ who is the greater prophet to come like Moses. So in many, many ways, Moses is a type. He was the mediator. If Israel wanted to go to God, they went through Moses. Uh, in the same way, if we want to go to the Lord, to God, we go through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the New Testament parallel is not that church leaders are like Moses but rather that Moses is like Jesus Christ, or in that way, Christ is the fulfillment as the head of the church, and no one is free to usurp that role from Christ. So then, how is the church governed? Well, a plurality of spiritually mature elders are to govern the local church under the headship of Jesus Christ. Uh, whenever the New Testament refers to leaders in the local church, elders, it is always plural with regard to a singular 
local church. For example, Acts chapter 14 and verse 23 reports concerning the churches that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas had founded on their first missionary journey when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You notice appointed elders, plural, in every church, singular. Same thing in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, I mean verse 17. Luke writes, from Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders, plural, of the church, the one church in Ephesus. In the same way, Paul wrote to Titus in Titus 1.5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now, to understand that verse, you have to realize there weren't 50 churches in a city. There was one church in each city at that point in church history, And he was to appoint elders in every church. Now, a plurality of elders over a local church is God's way of protecting that church against the abuses of authority that can come when you have a one-man ruler over a church. The elders have to submit together to the Lord and to one another and work together as best possible as a consensus and hold one another accountable. In the New Testament, there is one example of a one-man leader over a church, and it is not a favorable example. In 3 John, uh, verses 9 and 10, John wrote, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. So God's way is a plurality of elders who are spiritually mature, who are under the headship of Christ. Now, what do they do? Well, the main job for elders is to shepherd and oversee God's flock, not to lord it over them. Uh, In that section about Paul and the Ephesian elders, Acts 20, verse 28, Paul tells the elders, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among uh, over which God has made you overseers. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Here's the job. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So they are to oversee the church by shepherding the church. And the way they do it, as Paul makes clear in the context there, and also in Titus 1.9, is through God's word to exhort in sound doctrine, and to refute those who contradict. Peter said the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, here's the job, shepherd the flock of God among you, 
exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. I don't know if you saw it, but twice in our text, when the Lord is rebuking Moses, I mean Aaron and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Miriam, verse 7, and again in verse 8, he refers to Moses as my servant. And back in Numbers chapter 11, Moses addressed the Lord that way, saying, I am your servant. So he wasn't trying to build an empire for himself. He wasn't a politician trying to please all the people so he could get reelected. Uh, he was serving the Lord, and he sought to be obedient to the Lord's purpose for his people. And that is the model for church leaders as well, that we're just Lord, the Lord's servants, we're stewards of what he has entrusted to us, trying to be accountable to him. So elders are not then to run the church as they see fit, but rather they are to submit every decision, every policy, every action to the lordship of Jesus Christ, trying to apply his word. Uh, the late Ray Stedman, who was a faithful pastor, said this, The task of elders is not to run the church themselves, but to determine how the Lord in their midst wants to run his church. So, Moses then was not a model for us in terms of his sole authority over the church. He was there a type of Jesus. Uh, but in the church, a plurality of spiritually mature elders are to govern under his headship. And their main job is then, under his headship, to shepherd and oversee uh, the flock. But then, <clears throat> what about the church? Well, here comes the hard part. The church is commanded to respect, honor, obey, and submit to spiritual leaders. Now, I'm guessing that that statement rubs kind of like sandpaper on some of your souls. Submit? Obey? I mean, what are you, Jim Jones, wanting to, you know, have us all drink poison Kool-Aid? Uh, that's our idea of authority, and so we don't want to submit. Uh, even if you didn't have a bad experience like Jim Jones, I'm guessing that many here this morning have been in churches where you got burned by bad leadership. They did something wrong, you got hurt, you left that church, you thought cautiously, well, I might try again. If I get burned again, man, I'm done with church. A lot of people, I talk to many, who are that way. So I want to just cite a few scriptures here so that you understand this is not my word. This is the word of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, well, I mean, I can handle that. I can appreciate them and I can, I can try to love them and all of that. But it doesn't say submit to and obey, but it does say 
They have charge over you in the Lord. And that's what Peter said there. Uh, Shepherding those who are allotted to your charge implies authority. Second verse, 1 Timothy 4, verses 11 and 12, Paul says, Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example uh, to those who believe. The word prescribed there translates a Greek word that referred to the transmitted orders of a military commander. So we're not talking about suggestions. We're talking about commandments that come down from a hierarchical order is the idea of the word. And rather than allowing those in the church to disregard Timothy because he was relatively young, and scholars say he was probably mid to late 30s. So he wasn't, you know, 25. He he was in his 30s. But rather than that, he is to prescribe and teach these things, God's authoritative word, and it was to be backed up by his godly example. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching or work hard in preaching and teaching. You know, in the context, the very next verse indicates that double honor refers to both respect and pay. Um, we still, in fact, use the word honor to refer to pay when we say uh, we're giving that speaker an honorarium. It means we're reimbursing him financially. And often there is a connection between pay and honor. If you don't respect someone, you pay him peanuts. If you're paying him well, you respect him. And so the word has both meanings, but here I'm just emphasizing it includes respecting someone. Titus 2.15, the passage that I preached on that I quoted from earlier. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So Titus was to speak with all authority to help establish those new churches on the island of Crete. And then one last verse, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So that's where I got those words directly. Submit to and obey. Now, again, I realize that runs counter to the American way. Uh, But it is God's inspired, authoritative word to his church. But it raises a question. What do you do if a leader is wrong? Is it always wrong to challenge a leader? And that leads me to say there are times when it is right to challenge spiritual leaders. Now, in the case of our text, Miriam and Aaron were clearly wrong, and God made that clear. But to apply this passage to say that it is always wrong to challenge a spiritual leader would be wrong. That would be to misapply the text. And 
Maybe you, like I, have heard very authoritarian pastors, and they cite either Numbers 12 here, uh, or more often they cite David, when David said, uh, don't touch the Lord's anointed, meaning Saul, don't kill him. Uh, They apply that to themselves and say, I am the Lord's anointed over this church. You have no right to criticize me, to say anything against me, to correct me. I am contending that is to misapply the word of God. Because leaders, including myself at the front of the line, are human and fallible. And there are times we need correction. We need to be challenged on something and say, uh, how do you square that with this in the Bible? Now, if you think that a leader is wrong on something that's important, or you think he's in sin, then he may need correction. But the New Testament gives a proper way to do that and an improper way. And let me give you a hint. The proper way is not to go to others in the church and complain about the leader and to build a faction that agrees with you to try and get the guy out. That's not the right way. Um, If you think that a leader may be wrong on an important doctrinal issue, we're not talking about us, you know, what's your view of this prophetic uh, verse or something that's kind of debatable. We're talking about a key issue. He's wrong. Or if that leader has wronged you in some way. Maybe he was angry, rude, uh, somehow personally offended you. Or maybe you have a strong suspicion he's guilty of some sin that would bring reproach on the name of Christ if it comes out in public. You are first of all, of course, to pray. And then you are to go privately and meet with that leader and try and figure out what is the truth. So you don't go angry, you don't go, you know, vent and steam and all of that. You go humbly and you ask questions and you try and figure out, do I have bad information or is this true? You go privately. Then, if you don't get a satisfactory answer, Scripture says, and I'm just here paraphrasing Jesus in Matthew 18, you take one or two others with you. And you go, and you talk to the leader again. And in line with this, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, just after the verse I cited a moment ago, 1 Timothy 5.19, Do not receive an accusation against an elder, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest will also be fearful of sinning. So, It's not wrong to challenge or confront a leader whom you believe to be in the wrong. It is wrong to go and gossip about that leader, try and build a faction. You know, let's all go and get this guy voted out of office like we do politically in our country. That's not the right way to deal with it. Go privately, prayerfully, humbly, and talk. Now, that leads to the next thing, and that is before you challenge a spiritual leader, check your heart for the right motives. And it's obvious in our text, Miriam and Aaron did not have the right motives. Uh, The pretext, oh, that's this woman he married. The real reason, we're jealous. We want equal standing with Moses. He's our kid brother, after all. Who does he think he is? And so there was rivalry, there was 
this desire for personal power and recognition. Now, before you criticize or go to a spiritual leader, uh, honestly examine, Lord, what is my motive here? Uh, And here's an important point. Maybe the leader said something in teaching God's word that confronted something in your life you don't want to change. And so it's easy to take up an offense against him when the real issue is, I don't like what he said, even though what he said came right out of the Bible. So be careful not to do that. Uh, But if your motive is God's glory, I really want God to be glorified in his life and in the church. I want the church to prosper then perhaps you are called to go and talk to him. Now, what happens on the leader end? What should a leader, how should a leader respond when he is confronted or challenged or criticized? And I'll give you a hint. It is not in anger. And I've seen so many church leaders, boy, if you challenge them, they blow up and they use anger as a mechanism to keep the person at bay. That is wrong. Here's the right way. When a leader is challenged or criticized, the proper response is always biblical humility. Being criticized by his older sister and brother, I think, was especially painful for Moses. And I could have seen him blow up and get angry and stonewall and tell him, get out of here and all of that. But then verse 3 in our text explains, I think, Moses' reaction to their attack. It says, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man that was on the face of the earth. Now, some commentators and some critics say, Moses could not have written that verse, because if he wrote it, then he's not humble. And maybe you've heard that thing, you know, if you think you're humble, you're not. And that's kind of a common view. Uh, Some argue that the Hebrew word that is translated humble should here be translated miserable because Moses has been attacked in chapter 11 by the people and now in chapter 12 by his own family members and that he was the most miserable man on earth. I don't accept that translation. I am going to argue that Moses wrote verse 3 to explain why he didn't lash out in vindictive anger against his siblings, why he was not defensive against them. And I think that it must be possible to know when at least you're approaching humility because of this. The Bible commands us over and over to be humble. Is it commanding us to do something we go, I don't know, you know, I don't want to say I am because I might be and then I'm not. I don't think so. I think you have to understand what biblical humility is. And while none of us will attain it, where we can check it off on our list and say, yep, I've got that one down, um, I think we can know when we're approximating it. There are two factors involved in biblical humility. First of all, a humble person realizes that everything that he has, everything that he is, comes from the Lord by his grace, not by any merit, and that he is first and foremost the Lord's servant. And Moses qualified on those two counts. In other words, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, 
Why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? That's 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And uh, we are God's stewards. We're his servants. We're accountable to him. Second, I think a humble person is consciously dependent on the Lord, not on his own ingenuity, his own strength, or anything else. In other words, a humble person recognizes each and every day, oh God, if you pull out of this, I'm doomed. Because I depend on you. I, I cannot do this myself. I am inadequate in myself. Uh, Lord, I need your strength. Those two things, I think, are key in biblical humility. Now, how does that work out when you're attacked? Two ways. Sometimes it means you don't defend yourself. You just get out of the way and let the Lord defend you. And that's what Moses does here. Uh, Matthew Henry observed that when God's honor was attacked in the incident of the golden calf back in Exodus 32, Moses was bold as a lion in confronting them. But here, when his um, honor is attacked, he's mild as a lamb. So sometimes you just shrug it off and say, Lord, you know my heart, you know my life, take care of it. But there are times when a leader's integrity is challenged And if he doesn't speak out and defend himself, the very word that he preaches is disregarded. And at those times, it is right, and we have biblical examples of godly, uh, examples of godly men defending themselves. The Apostle Paul wrote two letters, Galatians and 2 Corinthians, to defend himself, his integrity, and his ministry. And you can read those. They're inspired scripture. Also, although Jesus did not defend himself at his trial, although he did with Pilate, he defended himself with the Jews. Read John chapter 5. Read John chapter 8. The Jews are attacking him, and he stands up to them and basically says, you know, you are attacking God's Messiah. And he lays out his credentials there. So, again, sometimes people who are attacking a leader are doing it because they don't want to obey his word that he's teaching through the Bible. And uh, at times, then at such times, a, a leader needs to defend himself and refute his critics. But, final point. We've seen God's... Um, he gives authority to spiritual leaders for the church's... Uh, blessing and their protection. There are times with human leaders when it's right to challenge them, when they are in the wrong, if you do it in the right way. Uh, When a leader is challenged, his proper response should be biblical humility. But then finally, we should never, and I could have put in ever, 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 challenge the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. And since Moses, as I said, is a type of Christ, The proper application of our text is to challenge Jesus as the sole authority over his church would be a serious sin, and that's going to incur God's discipline. Christ is the head of the church. He has revealed his will for us in his inspired and authoritative word, and we have to remember, Jesus is Lord, I am not Lord. Basic lesson in the Christian life. Jesus is Lord, I am not the Lord. 
Now you ask as you read this text, why did the Lord discipline Miriam and not Aaron? I think probably the reason is she was the instigator of the attack. Aaron was immediately repentant. Maybe he didn't want the same thing that happened to her to happen to him. Uh, When it says leprous, uh, it's not the modern disease of leprosy, Hansen's disease, and you've probably seen hideous pictures of people who have that disease. This disease made her like snow. It could be two things. It could mean as white as snow or as flaky as snowflakes, you know, or skin flaking off. It was some kind of a skin disease, and it caused a ceremonial defilement, this kind of leprosy that required the person be quarantined outside the camp for a period of time. In his book on the life of Moses, Dr. James Boyce offers an interesting suggestion. He says, if Miriam's problem was Moses' wife's dark skin, maybe God was saying, you like white skin? I'm going to give you white skin. And he struck her with this white skin. And the point is, God is against all racism. The color of a person's skin is totally irrelevant. It's a matter of genetics, as we know, and not a matter of one person being better than Another, And so we should fight against any form of racism as believers. Now, God heals Miriam in response to Moses' prayer, but she still has to stay outside the camp and bear her shame for a week. Probably the weight of her sin kind of weighed down on her during that week. Also, it was a lesson to Israel. Do not challenge God's leader Moses, who, as I said, is a type of Jesus. God says of Moses in verse 7, He is faithful in all my household. And Hebrews chapter 3 picks up on this incident and um, applies it to Jesus as one who is greater than Moses. In Hebrews 3.3, the author says, For he, referring to Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Remember, the Hebrews were tempted to go back to Judaism. And the author of Hebrews is arguing, you can't do that. You're going back to an inferior leader, Moses, an inferior system, the law, and Jesus has superseded all of that. Also, Here we read that God spoke with Moses mouth to mouth and openly so that Moses could communicate God's word to Israel. Well, who is Jesus when he comes? He is the eternal God, the word of God, who speaks to us the things of God infallibly. And so his word is the truth. He is God and he is with God. He is the word of God. And Jesus reveals God to us as no one else could. Now, I'm saying you shouldn't challenge the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm sure that most of you are thinking, oh, I would never do that. You know, I mean, Jesus is Lord. I am not Lord. I got that one. And yet, there are so many people who profess to believe in Jesus, but they aren't obedient. 
to Jesus. See, if you submit to Jesus, it means you obey Jesus, or at least you work at it. And Jesus gave some very hard commandments in his word. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount where he said, if you're sinfully angry and don't deal with that, you're going to hell. If you have a lust problem and you don't deal with that, you're going to hell. Now, that's a lot stronger than I would have put it. You know, if you'd asked me for editorial comment, I would have said, no, that's a little strong, Lord. Tone that down, please. Uh, but he didn't do that. And I either have to obey that or I disobey that. He said, you can't worship God and mammon, money. I have to obey that by managing my money the way the Lord commands, so on. So, hard stuff in the Bible, and when you hit up against it, you just say, oh, Lord, help. I want to obey you. Or you say, nah, I don't need to do that. That's not a good way to go. So to come back to leadership, while criticism is the manure in which God's servants grow best, before you try and help a church leader grow by piling on the manure, uh, please look at your own heart and examine your motives. Have you put yourself properly under God's appointed authorities in the local church? And are you showing the elder you may be critical of proper respect and honor as the Bible commands? And are your true motives for going and challenging him that you want him to grow in Christ? Do you want the church to look more godly? Or could it be some selfish reason? Or maybe you're not in submission to the word that the elder is teaching. And while granted, there are times when all of us as leaders need a little fertilizer on our lives, um, be careful again to do it properly and never, ever, ever challenge the Lord of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose authoritative word we have. He is the only Lord of his church. Let's pray. There may be someone here whose life has never come to the cross. You've never come to Jesus as a sinner and said, oh Lord, I need your forgiveness. I need eternal life. The Bible says if you were to die in the condition you're in, you would face God's wrath, his judgment for your many sins. But the good news is, God made a way for sinners to be right with him. And that is not through anything you do. It is not through qualifying. It is through trusting in Jesus and his death on the cross to pay for your sins. The Bible says whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, delivered from God's judgment. And my invitation to you in your own heart right now, if you're not right with God, is to say, oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Maybe as God's child, you've been in rebellion. and You need again, just, oh Lord, forgive my sin. Help me to be in submission to your word and to the leaders you appoint in government, in the church, in the home, and bless me, Lord, 
Father, I pray that we would all take to heart your inspired word and apply it correctly to our lives, that we would be the kind of church here that would give honor and glory to the name of the Lord Jesus, that our lives, Lord, would demonstrate something that is seemingly foreign to American culture, namely proper submission to proper authority. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.